Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Dear Adam Silver, a show about sports, art, and the space they share. My name is Abigail Smithson, and as always, I'm very happy to be here with you. I hope all of you are doing well and taking care of yourselves and other people during this crazy time with the pandemic. I know that uh, in Arizona, where I am, COVID cases are still going up, and um, I'm not sure when that is going to end. Um, and of course, also with just attempting to dismantle the systemic racism that this country has lived with before it was a country, that's also just the time to be watching out for yourself and other people. So um, yeah, I just felt it's important to acknowledge the time that we're in and and how we should move forward with, with care. So yeah, um, my guest today is Tay Butler. Tay is a multidisciplinary artist that is based in Houston, Texas, also a place where COVID cases are still going up. So thinking of Tay and, and his family. Um, he was a 21-year retired Army veteran where he spent the majority of that time in the National Guard, which allowed him to spend eight years as a power plant engineer in Milwaukee. This was a highly coveted, high-paying job that led him, in his own words, to an existential crisis that brought him to Houston and back to art. He received his Bachelor of Fine Arts in Photography and Digital Media from the University of Houston, and now he is a candidate for an MFA at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville in the Photography and Studio Art Program. Um, thank you so much to Tay for coming on and discussing his, you know, discussing the process that that he goes through to make work, why he feels compelled to to make art, and and what drew him to it, um, as well as his collages. That are is one of the the you know points of focus that that we discuss today uh, regarding his work and how it, you know sort of moving through uh, historical images, current images that that sort of push forward a narrative that that is not always fair or just to the people that are in the images. So we get into a lot of that, and um, I also just want to give a huge shout out to. Brianne Trammell, uh, who is an assistant professor of art at the University of Arkansas and also a former podcast guest and maybe a future podcast guest and also a huge sports fan. And Brianne uh, thought that Tay would be a great podcast guest and she she set us up and um, just really want to give her a shout out. We do mention her in the episode as well. So thank you, Brianne. Thank you, Tay. And thank you to all of you who are listening out there. Um, I so appreciate it. And uh, yeah, just take care of yourselves. Let's see. So I was looking more at your work since we last spoke and thinking in the context of, um, well, I've just really become fascinated with this idea or I mean this um, article you sent me of um, the editor from the National Geographic addressing the issues of racism that have existed in the publication since its beginning and it's it's sort of lack of representation and misrepresentation of non-white people um, from around the world um, and having a very spe specific sort of narrative in order to push forward um, a certain sort of preconceived understandings of, of different communities that we're not familiar with. Or, you know, when I say we, I'm talking about, like, in the United States, having a certain idea of what it means to be from 
a specific country in Africa and then having that idea reinforced by opening your National Geographic um, and that sort of misrepresentation as that being uh, a way to expand your understanding when really it might just be reinforcing what you already think. Um, so yeah, I've just, I, I mean, of course I've, I've known this, it was more that I had not read that article and, and that, you know, they, they wrote at the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King being shot, which was only, which was not that long ago. So the fact that this conversation had been going on, but it took very long for the, it took a long time for there to be a certain editor, you know, lead editor at National Geographic and also, um, I mean, yeah, that just was so recent for that conversation to be addressed by the publication. It seems a little, a little too late or, you know, late in some way. Um, so we had started talking about this last time because you were dis- discussing some pieces that you've made in response to, to imagery that you had seen in National Geographic's that, uh, that were problematic and and not necessarily the images were problematic, but how the images were described and how the stories were told within those pages. And um, I would just love to to talk a little bit more about your experience looking at images in life and National Geographic and how they kind of shaped your understanding of what a photographer's role is. Yeah, so... Yeah, so I, um, you know, I mentioned before that, you know, every chance I get, I try to make people understand why I chose collage. And um, I am, um, you know, a a man, I'm I'm 40, I'm I'm retired military. I've always been artistic. I've always loved images. I've always loved basketball. I've always loved hanging posters on the wall. Um, but I, you know, I'd be lying if I said that I was, you know, I grew up in a conscious household. You know, I grew up in a household where we were just trying to survive. We were just trying to uh, make ends meet, trying to be happy, trying to enjoy, uh, you know, the things that we had going on. And so... You know, my, my first real introduction to things that happened in the past or the way that things were was was magazines, to be honest with you. Like, um, <clears throat> you know, I remember fondly uh, reading Playboys. I used to tear the pages mm-hmm. out of my uncle's Playboys. And so at the, at the same time, I'm, I'm you know, staring at boobies this is like middle school you know i'm staring at 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 boobs i'm also reading about the old interview of of alex haley or i think it was james Wallner, alex haley interviewing um malcolm x Mm -hmm. and so um i remember finally these these recollections and they were rarely black you know they were usually of some you know, white figure or white entity that um, that they felt was was historical and prominent enough to revisit. But every now and then you would have like a Malcolm X or a Martin Luther King or something like that. Uh, so that was like my first introduction to like, I guess, you know, looking at history through a revisionist lens or whatever. And so from there, you know, I, I, I get older, I kind of step away from art. I, 
create this whole career where I'm working in a power plant and I'm like I say I'm in the military and now I got kids I'm working I'm paying bills um but but the moment for me was you know the death of of, uh, Michael Brown and Ferguson and and that was the first time that I really just dove head first into history um and you know, again, it, it, uh, a lot of it stemmed from magazines. Um, a lot of it stemmed from magazines. A lot of it stemmed from old Life magazines. I would go, uh, I would go find Life magazines for whatever reason. I thought Life was the uh, what's the word I want to use? Like the the apex mm-hmm. of 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 American history in magazine form. I thought life was that. Um, and then after reading for a while, I realized life is not that. So then I tried National Geographic. You know, I'm just trying to find quick, cheap, easy ways to reflect with history. Sure. And uh, what what cheaper and easier than going to half price books and getting uh, National Geographics from the 60s and 70s for 50 cent, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I would do that. I would go get stacks of National Geographics. And uh, once somebody got wind of the fact that I was looking for National Geographics, they would just tell me where they were. And people would send me boxes. And I would get boxes and boxes of National Geographics. So right now in my studio, I have to have at least, you know, 200 copies, if not more. Wow. Um, and I've bought them from everywhere. There's a, uh, there's a, the main museum on Wisconsin Avenue in Milwaukee, uh, has a library, uh, central library. And they were selling them one day for like a dime, but I didn't have enough space in my suitcase. So I just (laughs) bought as, bought as many as I could that would fit. And then I took them back to Houston and, um, and so from there, that's when I really kind of found my practice. And my practice was me going through these National Geographics and seeing these things that I couldn't explain, but I knew that they weren't right. I knew that it, doesn't, it didn't quite make sense to me that um, there's this magazine of a little girl, a little black girl eating a popsicle with a... Um, teddy bear inside of her jacket and when you go to that story it's all about how black and brown people are on heroin and crack cocaine in Harlem that doesn't make sense how how is how is this cover story with this beautiful image of this little black girl a front for the exposure of black and brown drug use in Harlem how is that the story? Right. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so I, I started from there and I started to like recreate the National Geographics. And I would like take the cover where they're not showing their racist, racism on the cover. The, the, the racism is inside the issue. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. On the cover, it looks like they're exploring a foreign place. On the cover, it looks like they're in Ghana. On the cover, it looks like they're 
honoring the cultures of people in, um, you know, Nigeria. But when you look into the actual stories, it's a lot of white men showing half-naked Africans, hey, look at my camera, and then being so amazed. Um, and other things like that. So everything that you've seen in that article I sent you, mm-hmm. um, I would go find actual examples of that and 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 re restructure it and recompose it. Now I didn't know that I was doing this specifically until I read this and then I was like, oh well I've already been doing that. I've already right. kind of been reconciling with that past. And so and so for me, you know, collaging is an act of justice, even though historically the photograph has been used as a uh, a weapon of violence against black people. Um, The first thing you see on his article is these pictures of these Aboriginal Australians that were called savages um, and they rank lowest in intelligence of all human beings. Well, when you look at this picture, it looks like you know, maybe some mixed race, but it looks like black people, right? And so this becomes the face of low intelligence. This becomes the face of savages. Uh, and so, yeah, I've, I've, I've just been very, very concerned and preoccupied with, you know, revisionist history. I love revisionist history. I love to go back and look at things that happened and say, Oh, well, this happened, and so now that explains why this is like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's what you're seeing now around the country. You're seeing young people, old people, black people mostly, and then a lot of white people finally saying, nah, this is not okay. We're not just going to let this one slide. We're not going to let any more of these slide. And, and, and we're using history as the lens for that. Um, we're going back and looking at things that have happened. And so you look at a George Floyd and, you know, you can go back to Eric Garner, but then you can go back to uh, uh, little Bobby Hutton in, in Oakland during the Black Panther days. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go back to Fred Hampton, right? And so... I do a lot of that. So right now I'm kind of studying the Black Panther newspapers. Um, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with them yet, but um, I'm studying that right now. And I'm I'm just reading all of these Black Panther newspapers. And it's the same stories that's happening now. It's the very exact same stories. The only difference now is we have an iPhone and we can upload it to Instagram. And two million people can see it by the end of the night. Okay. That's the only difference. The only difference. Well, and there, so yeah, that's, no that's kind of my thing. Yeah, it just seems like there's no effective way to look at what, yeah, is ha- just happened to um, George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor without, um, among many others, without looking at what's happened before. Um, you know, and I think that, uh, yeah, the, the, that's the only possible way to act actually address these issues as not as isolated incidents, but as as a sort of ongoing uh, 
sort of massacre in some sense spread out over time? Yeah, I mean, you you have to you have to look at history. So one of one of my I have a lot of beefs. I have a lot of beefs with obviously with people who struggle to understand Black Lives Matter, struggle to understand what these protests are about, mm-hmm. struggle to understand why Kaepernick was taken the knee. I have you know lots of problems with those people, but most of them I ignore. Um, my 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 problem that I that I find myself engaging with is people who you know white people who want to remove context and history from things that are happening today. And so we always want to not always but people want to look at what's happening in a vacuum. Okay, and say, well, this happened because this happened. And this happened because this happened, but they want to ignore, you know, a long time of other things happening. Um, You know, George Floyd is not just George Floyd. George Floyd is the latest in a long list Mm -hmm. of George Floyd's and and Breonna Taylor's. But those are just the people that we know about. Those are just the people that we heard about. You have to understand that there's another times five that we don't hear about. There's other people that, you know, that are are mentioning Sean King and Lee Merritt and everybody they can to bring attention to certain cases that, that go unnoticed. Um, you know, some people were killed here before George Floyd. Um, there were people killed in Milwaukee that... Uh, that did not make the hashtag list. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, you know, this is this is this is not just one thing. You know, we we have to keep that history, and that's that's why these hashtags happen. That's why these shirts get created. Um, because if we don't do these things, then it'll just be George Floyd. You know, we have to keep circulating these posts. We have to keep circulating these petitions and these, these things. I hate that, that, you know, you can watch a black person die on demand like Netflix. I hate it. But without that video is, is, is George Floyd the catalyst for this uprising? I don't think so. You know? So, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a necessary, uh, you know, unfortunate that that has to occur we had to see that video you know i think also just in addition to what you're saying the idea of that we're only really seeing the most egregious events the most unjust the most egregious and there's a lot of more subtle forms in the way that policing um, and systemic racism can kind of manifest itself um, in really upsetting, traumatic ways that that don't result in someone dying necessarily, but can be really um, traumatic. Uh, so right. if, if we're just only if we only see the the the, the worst possible scenario um, in many of these cases, it's it 
that we also need to be thinking about what is happening um, in these other moments that are really uh, upsetting. Uh, and I, I'm just I'm thinking about um, this har- harassment that the Mil- Milwaukee Bucks player faced like two seasons ago, I think. Um, but I'm forgetting yeah. his name now. Um, Sterling Brown. Sterling Brown. So yeah, he was he was pulled over in this like CVS parking lot, um, and and harassed by these police officers, um, and uh, and and that also was getting more attention because he's an NBA player and and he's able to um, sort of. Uh, there's just like a, a larger platform for sharing that, but I'm I'm just thinking about all the times that that's happening when it's not an NBA player. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so you know, Sterling Brown was you know he was double parked at uh, a Walgreens, mm-hmm. you know, on the, on the east side of Milwaukee, and. You know, how many times have I seen somebody double parked? They've never been tased or pepper sprayed for double parked, you know. Um, so, you know, he's double parked. Mind you, the, the, the parking lot is butt naked empty. There's nothing, nobody there. Right. This was late at night. Uh, this was late at night. There was no cars to be found in the entire parking lot. Um, so the fact that, uh, the fact that, you know, the officer even, even approached the situation just, just kind of, just kind of speaks to the defunding and abolition movement that's happening now, but that's, you know, we can get into that later. Uh, but you know, you, the guy comes out and he's a, you know, six, five black man. And and so you know the 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 most that should have happened was okay if you really want to write the man a ticket cool um, I'm not saying that you should see that he's wealthy and give him a pass or see that he's tall and black and assume he's an athlete but uh, you had a you had a number of ways out of the situation. Uh, but as as seems to be the case, you know, police like to find ways in to a situation and find ways to escalate a situation. And so, you know, he gets tased and it turns into this big thing. But like you said, like there were people that actually lost their lives who didn't get the coverage that he got. Right. Um, but the reason why Sterling Brown ends up becoming important, because unfortunately, a lot of people need the Maude Arbery's and the Sterling Browns to counter or counterbalance the George Floyds um, and the Michael Browns. You know, there's this good guy, bad guy dichotomy. And there's this understanding that, well, Michael Brown kind of acts for it. And then there's this thing where, okay, well, George Floyd has a long rap sheet. and he was he was high as a kite is what they say. And so, yeah, he probably was acting in a way that justified this. Um, so, again, I'll never, ever say that any of that was OK. It's not OK. I want them all to face justice. But but I'm saying that 
the Sterling Browns get more attention or get attention, period, because you have to have that counterbalance or they have to have that counterbalance to the not so shiny victims like, you know, George Floyd and Michael Brown. Right. Well, I mean, even those narratives created around uh, Michael Brown and George Floyd are, are sort of constructed in order to explain away this systemic violence. Uh, so it, it's just like even that, that, that balance is, is somewhat, somewhat false because there, there is no way to justify actually what is occurring. So there has to be made up stories. Yeah, for sure. Which I think is, goes back to your work and we're getting a little away from it, which I think is important to discuss these, this this trajectory that we're on uh, or this this event that we're in right now in this larger context of how we understand the individual events it that the the necessity to connect them um but I, I just thinking about sort of storytelling and narr- narratives that are perpetuated over and over again until we think that we have a complete understanding of people that live in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and that that is completely just what we're being told and has nothing to do with actual lived experience, but we still speak on those issues or make judgments and form opinions based on what the images that we're seeing, the articles that are, we're reading, um, and things like that, as an example. Um, so this idea to take these images from National Geographic that you're working with and to build something else out of them feels this this idea of like decolonizing images is is where I feel like that that your work matches up with that terminology. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think I think as an artist, you feel. You know, especially today, it's not enough to make things for the sake of beauty. Um, Even though I personally feel that, you know, portraying Black beauty, I agree with uh, Tyler Mitchell, the um, photographer who said that, you know, portraying Black beauty is justice. but but I, I I know that we're in a time now where you know people want something heavier, you know, before them. Um, <clears throat> now that that doesn't you know go into the why that I make, but it but it does um, influence my need and necessity to uh, study the black experience from uh, a historical you know lens, um, going into the, the old archives and finding out how that influenced the experiences that I'm having today. You know, how did Milwaukee become Milwaukee? How did Third mm-hmm. Ward become the Third Ward? Why and how did basketball become as important as it is to us as it is? Um, so National Geographic is key because it's the cheapest, most ubiquitous source. Um, You can't really think of any other source outside of 
um, you know, Ebony or Jet, and and you just can't find those, you know. Um, you know, Ebony goes way back. Uh, Jet goes way back. Um, you know, Jet goes back to uh, 1920s, if I'm not mistaken, I think. So, but you can't find those. And if you do, it's going to be a pretty penny. You know, if you find somebody selling 25 Jet magazines from the early uh, 1930s, sure. 1940s, it's going to be a fortune, you know. Whereas you can go into Becker's books here and you want to have price books and easily find a 1971 National Geographic and give the cashier two quarters. Um, and in that magazine, you're going to find a story and a lot of pictures of 1972 or 71 Chicago. You really can't beat that. You know, you can't beat even as racist as it is and as one-sided as it is and as harmful as this magazine has been uh, to black people and, you know, in, in, in support of white people, um, you can't beat having that, having access to that for so cheap. I can go to any half-price books and find right. you know, a, a pretty old National Geographic. And so, you know, me being a, you know, I'm not represented by a gallery. I'm in school. I'm, I'm buying everything out of my pocket. So, sure. you know, I, I need a way to get to this information, to get to these archives without breaking myself, you know. So, so that's why, you know, National Geographic is important. Like I say, I started with life, but then you see life is, is pretty bad. Like life is. Life is even more blatantly racist in my eyes than National Geographic. Geogra National Geographic was racist from an aspect of this is our truth and we believe it and this is what we're pushing out to the people. Life was more like this is this is this is the hierarchy of American life. And here, here's our, here's us introducing you to that hierarchy. And so I have a cover. Um, it's kind of tucked away, but I have a cover of a Life magazine where it's like a yellow cover, and it's about schools. It's about education, and the cover says, you know, should you allow more blacks into your school? So what, is, what does that mean? Number one, that means that they know who their audience is and their audience isn't black people, right? Um, number two, they know that their audience is other white people who do not live with or around other black people. So, so they already know who their audience is and what type of audience they're talking to. Um, and that's the stuff you would typically see on a cover of life, like, uh, you know, Muslim, Muslim is followed around by a black photographer. You know, they call Gordon Parks, the most famous black photographer ever, a black photographer. Right. So. So, yeah, you know, just just having the ability to. Um just revisit that history and, and do it at a cheap 
um, easy, easy process, you know? Yeah. And I also think, um, I'm not sure I'm forgetting when life magazine stopped publishing when they went, when they went under or out of business or whatever. Um, but just this idea that like national geographic is still very pervasive and just popular and has, you know, all these other sort of offshoots as far as like the TV, um, their TV channel and, and things like that and the shows they produce. And so in, in some ways, like, their whatever narrative that they have built is still ongoing um even if they're addressing these issues and and attempting to to rework some of that it's still it's still happen i mean like they're still a uh, very much alive yeah for sure even if even if they're not as prominent for their magazines now they have programming right. now they have television now they have documentaries um you know, I have I haven't kept up with them as much, um, you know, since the older, you know, copies and editions of the magazine. Um, you know, maybe I may dive back into it and see see what they're doing nowadays. Um, but yeah, it, it 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 like you said, it gave a lot of people their beliefs their belief system and their ideas on who was civilized, who wasn't, who was smart, who wasn't, who who the good guys and the bad guys are. And the, the good guy, bad guy dichotomy is a huge part of, you know, American culture, you know. You had mentioned in one of your emails to me, um, but it's repurposing as an act of justice. Yeah. So you're take the images that you're taking that you're cutting out or um, sort of reconfiguring with other images. Uh, and this is not just the work with National Geographic. This is also your your collage work that has to do with with basketball and um, clothing and, and things like that. Just the the repurposing of these images as a way to push back on on mainstream common often racist narratives yeah i i uh i like to repurpose you know i mean that that's what collage is inherently just taking something from somewhere else and giving it new new use new purpose um and i think that so like an undergrad i used to have even even now still uh in grad school you know, there are people who see collage and they just immediately let their brains go to a place of uh, whimsical, uh, accidental serendipity where you kind of just kind of let pieces fall where they may. And you have these things that don't belong together, but they kind of find a way to to harmonize and mesh well and, and make something interesting. That's typically what collage has always been. There's always been people to use it in different ways, but, but you know, in a typical sense, when you think collage, you think of, you know, putting a, uh, you know, putting a whale's nose on a giraffe and, and saying, you know, Hey, here's, here's a, Here's a here's a 
giraffe whale or you know whatever something silly sure. or some even if you're being serious you're you're being surreal um I never wanted to be surreal with my collages. I wanted my collages to actually give you an an actual real possible um, possible view of the black experience. Everything's not going to be realistic. It's not realistic. It's not to scale. There's arms that don't match bodies for sure. There's heads that are too small or too big. There's houses on top of houses. There's cars with mismatched wheels. Sure, but but it's not realistic, and it's not um, surreal. It's not. It's 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 something you may dream. It's like a dream. It's like um, components of a dream. It's like different planes. Yeah, they feel sort know. of disjointed. Um, like not everything is sort of sitting correctly, but you can still imagine it to be. Uh, real in some sense yeah for sure for sure so like there's a head in the foreground so maybe that's you closing your eyes and thinking of somebody close to you but there's two three black boys in the in a in a middle ground playing basketball so you remember when you were sitting on the sidelines and watching them hoop and then there's uh, a skyline and flowers in the back and that that reminds you of the park that's behind the basketball court so it's all there it's all real it's all uh real but not realistic and and it's and it's disjointed but it's not surreal um if that makes sense and so you know it becomes this thing where i, I want you to imagine where you would be there you know, you can't see all of that in one viewpoint. Maybe you're the one who's watching the game um, on the sidelines. Maybe you see it and you see yourself in the game. So now you see yourself with the player that's in the foreground. Um, maybe you see yourself driving past the park and seeing these guys play. So you're the one that's, that's in the grass. Um, you know, you can kind of pick where you are in this, in this image. You know what I mean? Yeah. So how, um, I think that also with this idea of repurposing, um, uh, sorry, I'm just looking for where I wrote, I'm looking at my notes. Um, repurposing as an act of justice comes to this point of also that the surrealists and, and the, um, Dada movement and things like that, that that these are political, um, to some extent, because there's this idea of like reimagining what is possible. Um, right. I think that's a word that like we're hearing a lot right now in the context of policing, uh, reimagining what police could do uh, or what purpose, sort of what what uh, role they could play or how they how they do their their work. Um, and so I don't mean to like use that as such a sort of commonly. Uh, you know, use thought right now, but just this idea that the collage has historically been used as a way to push back on, on what the current status quo is. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm even like, 
as you say that, I'm literally like just just thinking of all of the um, thinking of all of the business and corporations who have sent out emails uh, saying that they stand with uh, Black Lives Matter and, and Black people. Yeah, and I'm just I'm just thinking of a time where you know it was expected that you would separate politics from everything that isn't about politics. Um, and even just the word politics is, is misleading and tricky. Uh, <clears throat> I, I, even though I know it's politics and people will say it's politics, it is what it is. I just, I just don't think Black Lives Matter matters is political. I think it's, I think it's human rights. I think it's just basic um, human decency. You mm-hmm. know, um, now I'm, I'm me, so I, I would feel that way. I, I think one of another one of my beefs is that people think that something like all lives, uh, or th- people think that Black Lives Matter is something that they can just, uh, like Michael Che, the comedian, says, just say, nah, son, I disagree. Like, you, you can't just turn everything into a matter of politics. When I think politics, I think of something that we can agree or disagree on. You know, when I think politics, when I think politics, I think policies that you vote for and say yay or nay whether black people should be allowed to get the same treatment as other people and not be killed is not something you should put up for vote yay or nay so it's not politics it's it's actually just human rights and 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 that's for me the difference between my work um, and maybe some other people's work who, um, and in even other people's work, like there's a fine line between politics and human rights where I'm making this work in a political sense where I'm thinking about the things that people have and the things that people don't have and the things that people should give up. So like a key example is, should property taxes determine how much money your school gets, right? So that's politics. I don't think that Mm -hmm. that should determine how much money your school gets. Why? Because as we know, uh, you know, systemic racism and redlining and, and things of that nature have kept black schools schools in predominantly black areas um, out of that mix, you know, white flight and all of that. Um, if you have a, a good enough argument why it should be, then, then give it to me and, and then we can put a vote up. But that ain't got nothing to do with Black Lives Matter, right? So like, I think there's, I'm saying all that to say, I think there's a big difference between politics and the work that I do, which tends to be more about, um, <clears throat> you know, pe- we just want the right to be, uh, 
we just want the right to be normal. You know, we want the right to be normal. We want the right to be great and be average, uh, to be regular. We want the right to be uh, driving with expired tags. We want the right to be um, caught with counterfeit bills. We want the right to uh, have weed in our pocket and not die. You know what I'm saying? Um, I, I just I just feel like that's different than just the general term of politics. And and so I'm hoping that's why all of these companies are like sending blasting these emails out because they see now we've been doing this all wrong. We've been doing this wrong. We've been calling everything politics. Everything ain't politics. Some of this is not politics, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that I conflated politics with systems. Because, um, you know, politics are, the political structures that we have are systems. Um, but that not every, um, yeah, I, I think that that is where, that is like the connection that I'm, that I'm making, but I can understand it as this idea that Black Lives Matter itself is not, a political yeah, for sure. It's a human right movement. Yeah. Um, so I also just, I have some questions for you just on your perspective on photography as a medium as far as... Um, You know, I I really love the medium of photography, and I think it is a powerful way to communicate. And I also think there's this problematic history that we've discussed, and that you know, especially around photojournalism and documentary photography, when there are people going into places where they're not from or where they don't live, and and sort of collecting information, collecting images, and then leaving and going back to where they do live, and that image that those stories being shared. Um, in that, in that environment. Um, so then it's like, who gets to be the storyteller and, and who gets to sort of, um, create the narrative. Um, so I just, I'm wondering just in general, like your perspectives on, on photography, like has, has, Dissecting these images and looking back on these images made you um, think that it is, you know, maybe, I mean, what have you learned from your time at looking? Because I think that, you know, when, when people study photography, often it's about making images. It's not about always about like looking at images, but your process and your practice has been about making and looking or looking and then making. Um, and so I'm just, especially at like just an array of images and at the history of photography and at these specific publications. And so I'm just wondering. Yeah. I mean, I, I, even after everything that I've learned, after everything that I've encountered and, um, been exposed to, I still see photography as a, a you know a beautiful and useful 
an imperative, meaty, uh, meaty what's the word I want to use, media or, or way to capture uh, black people. Now, it's like anything else. When you, when you use it for evil um, and then you use it incorrectly and you use it with, with ignorance and, and uh, things of that nature, it's, it's going to... Um, it's, it's going to do more damage than, than good. Um, you know, I'm, I'm immediately thinking of the uh, Hurricane Katrina photos. Um, I, I can't remember his name because I don't, I'm, I'm not into mm-hmm. him like that, but I, I, I remember it being a controversial thing that he traveled to uh, New Orleans um, after the hurricane was over, trespassed into all types of houses and, and mostly black areas and took pictures. And he made a book and the book was hot and you know, sold well, whatever, whatever. But it was this thing where here we go again, right? Somebody, somebody, an outsider, somebody from outside of the community gets to come in and document this this existence that doesn't belong to him that isn't um you know his his experience and he gets to become successful from that documentation um but for every one of those you know there's there's so many where the photographs were used for good and the photographs were used to uplift and, and build and, and bring joy and bring um, recognition mm-hmm. like, you know, the Jamel Shabazz and, and Gordon Parks and um, even my homie here in, in Houston, Kobe Deal. The problem is not enough of those people get the opportunities and the notoriety and the book deals and the artist talks and the grant proposals that they need to keep going. That's the problem. It isn't, it isn't so much that, Sure. you know, the photograph and the, the, the photography in general is a problematic practice and a violent practice against black people. If more black people were put in positions to show their work, talk about their work, um, expose the world to their work, then we can balance that violence. Um, with everything, is going to be bad. There's going to be good with bad. There's going to be bad with good. You know, I'm a, I'm a Muslim, and there's so much in my religion that I love, but then there's so much in my religion that I wish was not the case. And you balance all of the bad with focusing and highlighting and elevating the good. And so when you have these businesses sending these email blasts out, like I said earlier, I hope they follow through with that email blast by actually, you know, increasing that diversity, increasing those artists and those photographers getting those opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> That's that's what's needed. You know, it wouldn't it wouldn't be as bad if the person who took the pictures of Katrina was actually from those wards. It wouldn't be as bad. It wouldn't have been as bad. 
Yeah, the exact same images could have been made, and it's it would have not been problematic if the person right. that took them living that experience living knew that where experience. to go, knew where not to go, knew knew whose house this was, knew what used to happen in this house. This guy is taking pictures of deserted, abandoned houses. He doesn't know anything about these places. He doesn't know who lived there, what used to happen. There, there could have been parties in this house. There could have been black businesses born in this house, famous black people, or huge, you know, New Orleans uh, luminaries could have lived in this house, but you have no clue. It's just a house. And, and we're, we're breaking it down mm. to color and composition um, when that, that shouldn't have been the case. Um, so, yeah, I think if we can just balance more of the violence and the um, appropriation and gentrification with actual opportunities for uh, black photographers, brown photographers, photographers of color, then then it it would it would be a lot better. Yeah, and this this moment that we're in right now with with all of these companies sort of. Um, speaking out I think that uh, if if now is not the time to put our attention towards uh, people artists um, creators whoever have have historically been not given that attention and not given that platform um, from you know Vogue to what I, I mean to to the biggest platform to the from from the biggest platform to the smallest platform just that 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 has not been the opportunity opportunity um is really it it hopefully will happen now um it seems like there's already this reckoning with like some ceos stepping down for not have uh being good leaders in the past and then also not recognizing that their their uh workforce is not as diverse as yeah particularly my uh, beloved uh creator of of crossfit uh or or i should say i should say the creator of my Mm. beloved crossfit i don't care about glassman but um Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't care for him either way. Like what either he made, way, but not I, I don't him. keep up with like the 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 says and the doings of CrossFit. Uh, I just love the the workout, and I love the communities that I've that I've typically been able to have. Um, were they diverse? Absolutely not. Um, but they've always been welcoming. They've always been. Um, good to me. Uh, I started coaching here in Houston uh, two years ago. The uh, the box that I, I work out with now is, is probably the most diverse box I've ever been in. Um, you know, the, the boss is Asian and there's black people there. There's, there's you know, uh, Arab Americans there, uh, Latinx, um, so yeah, I, I feel great about the one I'm at now. Um, and, and it's like anything else, you, you go where you see yourself. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's not so much that CrossFit was pushing against 
black people or people of color. It was just that you come in and it's just 60 white people and you're the only black person there. Well, it don't matter how nice you are. It just, it just feels like get out. You know what I'm saying? So, um, it just is what it is. And, 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 uh, Mm -hmm. so yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens with, with the new guy. He had his, uh, questionable behavior last year so we'll we'll see how it goes i guess yeah and and i think i i really want to touch just again on this idea of uh you know when we talk about gordon parks and celebrate gordon parks that that he is known as a black photographer and i think that that is something that is worth um it's just that 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 sort of it seems um, wall that 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 black creators can be up against as far as um, wa- wanting to to make and and build and create without everything being attached to the color of their skin and that experience. Yeah, so uh i'm glad you asked that like this is a conversation that we we get into a lot as black creatives um so you know disclaimer for me this is only me i am an avowed proud race man and and what what the term race man typically means is i'm a black person who is uh, blatantly, loudly um, attaching what I do to the liberation of black people. Um, I don't know who, I don't remember who coined the term, but um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a race man. And, and, and so while I have the dual uh, intention to show my work from the black experience and I want you to specifically know that I'm highlighting the black experience I also have the other side of me that says that I want to be able to do what I want to do without it without you only being wanting to or willing to accept the work that is blatantly about the black experience Mm -hmm. um so so an example of that is basketball um in undergrad i would introduce basketball into my work and people would kind of push back on it uh this is just this is cool this is just sports maybe this is fashion based i don't know but but this isn't necessarily the art that we're looking for um, when I'm thinking, I didn't know then, I didn't know how to say it. I know how to say it now. What I was doing was signifying and, and signifying is a term that Frank Bowling came up with where a piece of work can do two things at the same time. And so when I make the work, I'm talking about black joy, a bunch of young black men playing basketball. That's joy. That's me externalizing something that makes me happy. And it happens to be a sport. So I'm, I'm 
maybe put it in sport art. If you want to call it sport art, that's cool. Um, but at the very same time, I'm talking about the Black experience, and I'm talking about us not having driveways with with rims in the the driveway or attached to the garage. So we had to go into the alley and nail up a milk crate onto a telephone pole and put a big piece of wood behind it. And that's how we play basketball. So I'm doing two things at the same time. I'm, I'm, I'm outlining a black experience, which comes from segregation in Milwaukee, mm-hmm. political. And then I'm also not talking about that. And I'm just talking about the joy that it gives black boys to play basketball. So, um, it's, it's a weird space to be in. I think a lot of my peers kind of try to play both sides of the fence and, and say, Hey, I'm more than a black artist. But then at times like this, it's like, nah, I am a black artist. I'm making black work. I want you to recognize that. And so, you know, I'm not saying that we pick and choose and conveniently, but it's kind of like there are times where I want you to focus on my blackness and there's times that I don't want you to focus on my blackness. Um, <clears throat> other people that are not black don't have to worry about that as much as. I would say very, very little. I, I mean, it's so rare that anyone that a, that a white artist would be referred to as a white artist. Um, yeah, for sure. Cause, so th- cause they're, they're an artist, you know, they, they make art and that's that. We're the other, so we have to kind of find our little niche or box that we fit in. And and that's that's very much an ingrained systematic issue within the art world. I mean, within the art world and beyond the art world, that that is um, something that I really would like to address more head on. I mean you know, as we're speaking about it now, but just that um, it, it is, again, finding ways to um, have uh, black people account for more than, than white people are expected to account for. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I think, I, I, I feel like, at least right now, that's that's always going to be the case when you're less than the majority. I don't I don't like to use the term minority anymore. You're you're less than, uh, you know, underrepresented. Some people say less than majority. Uh, that's that's always going to be the case. You're always going to have to, you know, hey, I'm here. Um, <clears throat> But but I you know I I think that you know especially now with with everything that's going on it could potentially change where it's just it's not so much of a big deal that you come into a museum and there's blackness there right away or you you go into the uh, represented artists on a gallery page and see 
a lot of black artists is not going to mean, oh, this is a black gallery. Yeah. You know what I mean? Definitely. Um, yeah, that I think that's an, an important um, sort of place to work towards as, as much as possible. Um, and just speaks to kind of how the the system of white supremacy really and, and white privilege kind of manifests itself in so many different ways uh, as far as the, like, what well, you know, the, the, the movie that we see of or the video that we see of, of, of George Floyd um, is, is, is a very uh, overt form of that versus what we're talking about right now. Right. So, um, yeah, I just think it's on every um, on every level. It's important to address those those issues. Um, and Gordon Parks is a great photographer. Aside from anything else, he's just a great photographer. So I think that at the end of the day, we should be able to distinguish that it, from his within the world of photography that he just, he gave a lot and offered a lot and made a lot of really profound, beautiful imagery. For sure. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about basketball. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm, you've played and you played in high school and, and you had explained to me that you had some off offers from, from colleges to, to play as well, and you you chose to go into the army, um, and you sent me this really amazing video of you um, in Kosovo, where you were stationed. I'm not sure for how long, but playing against uh, a Kosovo club team is what I think. Uh, with your yeah. like, with the other with the other guys you were stationed with, like you had your own sort of team, and and they had theirs, and. Um, that was just an incredible, I mean, I also have this weird obsession with Kosovo, so that was just really good timing for me to, to watch that, but just your experience making artwork about it is also, there's also this, you know, that you love to play. Right. Yeah, and that's, that's why I, you know, emphasize that, you know, the, the work that I've become most famous for, Moonlight or Moonlit. Um, mm -hmm. yes. you know, while, while it, it definitely had some political tinges to it with, uh, you know, the, the social status of the boys in the collage and, and where we lived and things of that nature. Uh, it was in it, in its purest form, uh, uh, an expression of joy, purest form expression of joy. I can never get back those days of I can play ball I can go play ball right now and and I'll and I'll be hard-pressed to find a way to replicate the joy that I felt playing uh as a young young boy in the alley on a crate like it was just it was new it was different um I was building the person that I you know was trying to become uh you know, that was my first time performing for girls. Uh, you know, sure. <laughs> you, you never you never can get back things when they're no longer new. Right. So, you, you know, that's that was the first time that I 
you know, was a performer or was a uh, was an athlete. It was like a dose of playing in college. And so, um, so yeah, I just want to make sure it's known. I didn't have like any division one, division two <laughs> offers. I, I had some uh, division three offers, which is more like, hey, just come play and you can play on the team. It's not like a full ride or things of that nature. Um, but I did have uh, uh, three schools, two in Minnesota, one in, in Wisconsin that were like, yeah, we could use you. Come come play. And and, uh, and I chose the Army for whatever reason. I, I'll never understand that. I'll often say that I, I don't know why, but I did. Uh, turned out to be a good, good idea, good choice, because I just probably wasn't mature enough to handle being a college athlete and student at the same time. Um, spent 21 years in the Army, uh, retired last year in July. And so um, I've been playing everywhere, all over the country or in the world, I should say, uh, for a long time. And so one of those places was uh, Kosovo, um, where I was stationed for nine months. And so while there, we were kind of breaking down a camp, uh, Camp Bonsteel, that had been in place since the conflict. And, and we got a chance to play um, against Club Drita, which is a professional team there in Europe. Um, they beat us twice. The first time they beat us by almost 40. And then the second time, we lost in overtime by like five or six. Um, I had like 30 points the second game. I want the, the record to be shown. Yeah, the footage I saw um, was very flattering for you. <laughs> was, yeah, you were, you were training a lot of shots. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was getting buckets that game. Uh, the crazy thing is, it was freezing cold in the gym. So you know, this is Kosovo. This is not America. There's no pretty gyms. It was a huge arena, and there was no heat, and it was like ten degrees outside. And so, before the game starts, we're like running back and forth to try to get warm. But once you plan, you know, now you warm. Um, but yeah, that was the that was a fun time playing against them. Uh, Two thousand and five, my first deployment ever when I went to, or my second deployment when I went to uh, Kuwait um, and Camp Arif John. We played in a tournament where all of the college coaches were there. So Jay Billis was there. Wow. Uh, Kelvin Sampson was there. Tubby Smith. Um, Gottlieb, uh, my coach was Gary Williams from Maryland. Um, a lot of people, a lot of people, uh, Dave Odom, I think he was at Wake Forest at the time. Um, so that was cool. Uh, you know, he's on TV, he's on like Fox Sports Net. Um, so yeah, I've been, I've been playing all my life, uh, you know, and, and so I'm in the process now of like studying, and I hate to use the word studying, but that's what it is. I'm studying, you know, the 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 power of basketball where I'm from, from Milwaukee. It's everything. Like the the social currency that it gives you is 
unlike anything else. You can be rich, you can be a famous rapper, you can be this, you can be that. But if you can hoop, uh, you're like a local hero forever and ever and ever. And so, um, you know, I may be exaggerating a little bit, but there's there's people still to this day that people know them from playing ball and they they're still cool and and some of that is 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 bad or problematic i hate that word but i use it from time to time um where you're kind of you know it's like al bundy you living off that that past right you're 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 walking around with your varsity jacket still from 20 years ago um but it's true. It's real. It's it's uh, it's really a real thing where we still got people that are living off their their past glories with that basketball. And um, but on the flip side of that, we also have entire you know communities that are strengthened by the game. Um, you know, and we have the third longest running. Uh, you know, basketball league uh, behind the Drew and, and the Rucker uh, with uh, with warning project respect. So, you know, basketball is a big thing in Milwaukee. We just don't have the name recognition. We don't have the stars. We don't have the the famous people. You know, we got we got Devin Harris. We got Kevin Lon- Kevon Looney. We got you know a couple other people, Jordan Poole, but we don't we don't have the we don't have the famous people besides Spreewell and, and like Terry Porter. And that's mm. it. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of looking at that. I'm looking at old art. I'm looking at David Hammonds. I'm looking at, you know, um, a lot of Brandon Donahue. I'm looking at, um, a lot of stuff. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of the podcast. So I've listened to a lot of them, a, a lot of the works I've listened to, uh, 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 Brandon, Shea Serrano. Um, I know who Bradley Ward is, being from Houston, yeah. so I listen to, to his podcast. Also, collage, um, big on collage. Yeah, for sure. I listened to. Uh, I just listened to the Blake Lepsey one last last night, actually, and that was a tough one to listen to. He, he uh, really, really got emotional after you read the letter, so. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't think either of us knew that was going to happen. I mean, that's probably the most organic surprise I've ever had on the podcast. Yeah, and I, um, you know, as he was reading the letter, I, I, I wasn't sure that I agreed with him. I was like, well, everything you're saying is a reason why the NBA needs to come back. But then once he finished, and it was like almost impossible for him to speak, and then he kind of explained the letter. Then it was like, okay. Um, maybe I'm in denial. Maybe I'm in denial that the world can just go back to what it was. I think, you know, he kind of made me think, okay, maybe, maybe the truth is that, you know, there's a world before March and, and then there's a world after March. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, we need to all be aware of that now. Yeah, I, I think it was it was it was uh, like I felt that he was speaking to issues that were much greater than basketball um, as far as like what we 
where we put our attention. I mean, and I think where we put our attention is also a lot of the times where we put our money. Um, and so just thinking about like basketball as its own thing, um, that that like in general, like people going to to parks and and just courts that are that are public is not something that makes money for anyone. That's just a a space for people to to get together and and you know form a community or or exercise or whatever it is. And so this idea that like uh, that's not the bat that's not the most like professional basketball might reopen before that that sort of community space reopens. And and I think what he said about golf was kind of pertinent to the conversation right now, uh, just because of golf being uh, a, a sport that is, is for, um, for, for wealthy people, historically. Um, so, yeah, I, I just... Uh, it was, I thought it was a beautifully written letter, and it's not super easy to connect necessarily to to other issues it just seemed like if you're gonna read this at all it might as well be now (laughs) right yeah um uh yeah i I forgot uh, i was just about to say something i kind of lost it go ahead no, I, I'm I'm just happy to hear that you you're listening to the podcast and if it provides anything at all, um, as far as oh, I was going to say shout out. I was going to say shout out to Brienne. Uh, oh, huge shout out to Brienne. Uh, yeah, for sure, she's uh, the the one that kind of put this emotion and 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 uh, my my basketball compadre at the, the University of Arkansas. So. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, for me, basketball is something that I feel like if I really care about it, that means that I have to think about it critically. And I also have to kind of like turn it upside down and shake it and 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 try and get as much out of it as I can as far as what what it means. And even just hearing you talk about it as a currency, like that word is not something I had thought about before. I I it's it's I understand that like people who have been dominant at one time in their lives in sports like that's something that lasts for much longer than the actual event and that's like some kind of power that can be carried on but this I this that word currency like it just I feel like every time I talk to someone about it I I walk away with these different ideas about about what it means yeah um you know, I've been kind of playing with this currency word. I shouldn't say I've been playing. I've been seeing the word currency a lot. And um, and so, you know, I we talk about other things. We talk about things that provide currency. Um, and, and lots of things provide currency, right? Like uh and 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 social currency is another one of those things that can be given from negative and positive aspects so you being good at basketball can provide you currency but you also being um uh entertainingly misogynistic can also give you currency mm-hmm. right so like currency is so 
again, I hate this word, but currency is so problematic in that um, we give it we give it too much power and and it and it becomes applicable to things that it shouldn't be applicable to. Um, so while it should be celebrated that a person is a good basketball player, it should not mean that this person should be uh, not not have the same expectations as other people, right? Um, so again, you know, starting Brown, you know, he 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 shouldn't his story shouldn't be publicized more than somebody else's because he's a professional basketball player. Uh, but that's unfortunately, you know, what, what goes with it in this country where we're just so, we're just so enthralled with, you know, fame and status and, you know, who you are and, and what you're good at. And, um, you know, who you are depends on what your currency is. So, um, you know, if you're black, you probably have currency in athletics or dancing or other stereotypical genres. If you're, you know, something else, you have other, uh, you have currency in other places and maybe you don't deserve those either, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that, that it, it is right that it's just the sort of the, the, the power that we sort of collectively give to, to fame and money and, and stuff like that, which allows for Sterling Brown's story to be told on a mass level and for other people who are experiencing very similar things and don't have that name recognition. Um, even though I couldn't remember Sterling Brown's name at the beginning of this, um, it, it's, it, there's like a lack of, of understanding how pervasive things can be. Right. Um, speaking of Sterling Brown and the Milwaukee Bucks, I just want to touch really quickly since the NBA has announced that they're coming back and uh, the Milwaukee Bucks were at the top of the, the standings in the Eastern Conference and there was a lot of discussion about, you know, if the NBA didn't come back that Giannis would, would, would get the MVP again. I'm just wondering where you're at as a Bucks fan um, as as this could potentially be like a championship season for you. Yeah. So I, I definitely think you have to, whoever wins the championship, unfortunately is going to have an asterisk like the, you know, 99 lockout season. <clears throat> um, so you're going to, you know, let's say my beloved bucks win. It's going to be the year. It's going to be the lockout year. It's going to be the year that, people were out of shape or lazy. It's going to be the year that there were no fans. It's going to be the year that there was no um, travel, no home court advantage. It's just going to be like a summer league, and this is who won the summer league. Um, so for that reason, I'm, I'm, I'm not as invested anymore in who wins. Mm-hmm. Um I'm 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 open to it, you know, them coming back and it's just being something cool to watch, seeing I I think right now it's more just the novelty of wow, having an NBA game with no fans. We've never seen this. And and again, we've seen Summer League, but 
summer league is different. You know, summer league is usually a bunch of players you don't know with the occasional Zion or somebody like that. Right. There's not that um, same investment and excitement. Yeah. You know, you don't have the full roster. You don't have the real coaches. You don't have, you don't have something on the line. It's kind of just workouts and people trying out. And so, um, I'm very, very intrigued just to see how it looks. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I've kind of lost that investment. Uh, before you, you called me, I was actually watching, um, I was actually watching, uh, Devin Booker, uh, I was watching League Pass, so, you know, they get free League Pass for a little while, and so I was, I was, or I guess for another couple months, and so I was watching, um, the, I think it was like March 25th or something, um, Devin Booker gave, uh, gave somebody 59 points, Utah gave Utah 59 points, um, <clears throat> So I watch stuff like that. I've been watching kind of like stuff from um, last year. I've been watching stuff from, the, you know, the season that just passed. I've been watching a lot of Bradley Beal uh, right after the All-Star game. He got snubbed. He went on a crazy spree. Uh, I've been watching a lot of Beal. I've been watching a lot of John Morant. Um yeah, that's kind of what I do. I put a game on. I put some music on. I'm, I'm playing a lot of Quelly Chris right now and maybe some jazz or something. Something that I don't have to think about. Um, or I'll play a book and, and just make just make stuff. And, and that's kind of been my process since quarantine started. So, yeah. I definitely feel you on the old games i've spent a lot of time on youtube i pretty much watched every finals between 2000 and 2005 um on youtube a couple weeks ago and it it can be really fun just i mean it's like things that i mean it's just crazy how dated things can feel from not that long ago um and even just seeing big crowds of people together this was before the the protest started when i when you know i hadn't seen a lot of live images of people gathered together in a long time so right. that's the big before when we talk about things changing, I think. Um, um, so my last, yeah, question, sure. yeah, my last question for you is about stay close. So that's your Instagram handle or the beginning of your Instagram handle. And then it seems like it's also a, a ongoing work of yours. And I'm just wondering how stay close came to be. Yeah. So like, um, back in the sixties, the black power movement, you know, certain terms and phrases came to be, uh, one of them was, you know, black power, black is beautiful, but then wake up. And that was, um, a term that came to, to me, you know, open your eyes to what's going on around you. Mm-hmm these these things that they want us to just accept uh, as fact uh, you know we can't accept these things anymore let's let's really really wake up and look at what's going on and so time passed and and wake up 
is repurposed for you know the the Twitter um, generation into um, stay woke. Uh, stay woke being you know the contemporary version of wake up. Yeah. Well, I twist it a little bit further and say stay close. To stay close, that means to um, get to the, the true essence of not only yourself, but uh, your role in this, 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 this human world, this material world that we live in. And, and you know, one of the tenets of um, <clears throat> white supremacy is individualism and meritocracy where, you know, don't worry about other people. Just take care of your own stuff and, 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 you know, do your, do your own job, do your job. And, and, uh, you know, you can tie all types of things into that, whether it's bringing politics in places that is so-called don't belong and, um, criminalizing, uh, being homeless and criminalizing drug use and, things of that nature right there's there's so much dog eat dog that it's, it's like you're a weirdo if you uh show love to other people you're a weirdo if you want to figure out what your purpose is and how it affects other people um stay close for me is 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 staying close to the idea that you know we we're on this earth to um to you know, coexist with other people. You know, you're not on this earth to just get yours and ignore everybody else. Like, that's not what we're here for. Uh, I know this country forces you into that and, and talks you into that and tells you that that's the, that's the key, that's the goal, is to don't be a sucker and, 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 and get yours and, 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 get, and worry about whoever else later. But you know, I, I just want to get back to a time, and I don't know when that time was, but I want to get back to a time where, um, you know, we actually thought about other people before uh, we did things or as we did things. We thought about our actions and where they fit into a larger context. You know, I had a good friend of mine just call me right before you saying that she wanted to get out of commercial real estate because she just didn't feel like it 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 is it is a space for a young black woman to be working in, in today's climate when that's one of the most violent uh uh you know that's one of the most violent industries in this country is real estate right <clears throat> and so Something like that. People people think you crazy. People thought I was crazy to walk away from a six-figure job. Sometimes I think that as well. Um, but I no longer could just work in a vacuum of myself and just me, 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 and everything I do is about me. I wanted to influence. I wanted to be influenced. I wanted to participate in Black culture. I want my kids to see me participate in Black culture. Um, that's more important to me than, than having a big house and, and great credit, you know, um, 
So that's what stay close basically embodies for me. Yeah. I'm so glad I asked because that's that's a, a wonderfully said answer and thought about. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for asking. I also want to, yeah, <laughs> I also just want to acknowledge that this has come up um, a bunch since we've been talking, but that you use the word violence to describe things that are outside our normal understanding of what violence is. Um, and I think that that is so important, like always, especially right now, that there are so many different forms of of violence that don't have to do with, you know, and I, I spoke about this on the last podcast I recorded, but just like they don't have to do with hitting someone or kicking someone like violence is in so many places. And I just I just noticed that that you're using it in, in a in a really profound way. Yeah, and I actually noticed that you guys were talking about that last night as well uh, <clears throat> in the uh, last podcast. Uh, yeah, with Blake. Yeah, so you were kind of speaking about how, you know, when you use the word violence, you know, a typical person is thinking, violence, I didn't attack you. Uh, but that's that's not what what I'm saying is, you know, violence is anything that, um, you know, injures another person and injury isn't just physical, you know, injury is, is, is mental. It's, 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 uh, political, it's, it's social, it's financial. Like there's, there's many ways to injure somebody. Um, so, so yeah, I, I'm frequently using, the word violence, it comes up a lot of a lot in our critiques, whether we're talking violence against the black body or we're talking about violence against uh, the black vote. You know, we're talking about the, mm -hmm. the, the last election where black people were blamed for the election of Trump. Um, nah, black people were not blamed and were not responsible for the election of Trump. Uh, black people just decided, damn, 2016, uh, century plus after getting the right to vote, we're still voting against somebody. How about we start voting for somebody? Um, now, I don't I don't recommend that people not vote. That's not what I'm saying. And I don't recommend that people stay home. Um, what I do recommend is that we stop voting against people. Um, so I keep seeing this hashtag that says, vote him out, vote him out. I want Trump gone just as much as anybody else. Uh, sure. but that doesn't mean that I'm just going to package my vote to Biden and he doesn't have to say anything to me. That's ridiculous. Um, and that's what we've been doing from day one, from day one, all anybody has to do to get the black vote is say, I'm not as bad as that guy, and, and they got and they got us. Um, that's violence. That's violence. So I think that we we are finally waking up to the fact that we we have the power to demand something for our vote. Um, it's just unfortunate that it runs concurrently with 
the election of Donald Trump. Yeah, I know. And, and it does feel like a it does feel like one of those situations where you have to vote for anyone because it's Donald Trump. But at the same time, it, I it's it's also just, um, yeah, it would be nice to feel that, like you're saying, to vote for something. Um, and I don't think that the the candidates that I was most excited about voting for are no longer uh, running <laughs> right now. Right. So it's, yeah. Yeah, it puts you in a bad space because now it's like, well, I can't do what I want to do, which is vote for somebody because that person doesn't exist. So if I if I choose somebody else to vote for, I'm giving the election to somebody that I desperately want out of here. Um, it's, it's so difficult a space to be in. Um but but yeah, I, I I don't know. We're gonna we gotta figure it out. I guess. Yeah. Um. I I there was something else I wanted to touch on, but now I'm forgetting what it was. Um. Oh, just yesterday I was interviewed by someone for their YouTube channel, and I'm not that I'm not that used to getting interviewed. Um, and mm -hmm. he had told me a little bit about what the questions were going to be about, but, um, he ended up asking me what I thought about Colin Kaepernick saying, saying mm -hmm. that he wasn't going to vote in 2016, and, but I didn't know he was going to ask anything like that. You know, that's a, that's a, um, I mean, I, I said what I thought and that, you know, if you believe that the system is designed to not work for you, then, then why you know, then I can understand why he wouldn't want to participate in something or wouldn't, you know, be, be organizing people to do that, even though I wish that he felt that his, that voting was something that, that could, um, that could change things. But if you feel like your vote can't change things, it's hard. Um, but I just didn't know, I wasn't expecting to get that question. It's a really loaded question. Um, and especially coming, you know, my perspective on voting is, is different from, we all have we're having different experiences and of course like if everyone voted we would we we would have a different president potentially I don't know but it's just like um it's not anyone's fault because the way that this is designed is to your like you know frustration of people with having feeling like it doesn't matter I, I completely can understand that yeah, I, I I think that goes back into the the violence against the black vote, yeah. where, um, you know, it it reminds me of. Have you ever heard of the term black on black crime? Yes. So you know, black on black crime was 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 born in the seventies in the Chicago newspapers, and it was a black person talking about the crime that's happening in black communities in Chicago. And this black person is saying, yo, we, we, we know our history of violence against white supremacy. Why would we allow this realization, this, this reality to allow us to tear apart our own communities? Um, so all it took was that, that quote, that soundbite, black on black crime, getting into the newspapers and it slowly started to spread 
until it was perverted and gentrified and now it's used against us. So now when Black Lives Matter is shouted, the first thing you want somebody want to talk about is black on black crime. Mm-hmm. When the facts are there's no such thing as black on black crime. You kill, rob, and hurt people that you live close to. Um, in the 70s newspaper, they were interviewing a guy, a criminal, and he was like, well, what do you want me to do? Hitchhike to Deerfield, Illinois, and go rob a white family so that they can execute me on the spot? No, I'm going to rob the guy that lives next door because I know he got some money in the house. So there's no such thing as as black on black crime. You White people kill white people. Mexicans kill Mexicans. Asians kill Asians, right? Never has there ever been Mexican on Mexican crime. So black on black crime is the same thing that's happening now with this black vote where lazy black voters aren't going to the polls. But we're going to totally ignore all of the things that have been put in place to deter the black vote. So let's we don't have to talk about the old days. We don't have to talk about uh literacy tests and all of that from the uh 60s let's talk about what happened just a few weeks ago when black people in milwaukee were trying to vote but because of covid19 you had to social distance and they uh shut down all of the polling sites on the north side of milwaukee north side of milwaukee is where all the black people live excuse me and You literally have people in line for three hours trying to vote. Meanwhile, people that live in wider areas of Milwaukee could vote in five minutes. Right. Is that not is that not violence? Is that not to deter the black vote? So you have these same people who not really paying attention to stuff like that, where. You know, you're talking about a couple hundred thousand people had to vote at five schools in Milwaukee. Um, But they want to point the finger at Kaepernick. Now, I'm not saying Kaepernick was right, but I understand. You know, I understand when you don't have the the candidate. In a lot of cases, you don't even have the 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 proper infrastructure to vote. especially in places like Milwaukee. You know, that doesn't happen as much here in Houston because it's so big. They can't have five polling sites. You know, Houston's too big for that. Uh, But they can get away with that kind of violence in Milwaukee um, because it's just small enough where you can justify it. And, hey, if you want to vote, if you want to vote, you'll wait for four hours. But they they wouldn't make white people vote for four hours. No way. Right? So... Yeah, that's that's kind of my take on on that. Yeah, um, and that he yeah. that he said that he wasn't going to vote has has started a conversation around what we're talking about now. That if if he had chosen to announce he was going to vote for Hillary Clinton, we wouldn't be having this conversation necessarily. So realizing that these issues are are within our system and that there's there's not an, an individual cannot uh, fix the, necessarily fix them. Um, yeah, I mean, I just think that that was a, he voted in his own way and that is, has its own power. 
Yeah, for sure. I, I think so, too. I think that, you know, people love to bring up Martin Luther King. They, they love it. They love it. They love it. They love to say, they love to bring up Martin Luther King with the protests and, and everything and saying what he would do and what he wouldn't do. And they don't know. They don't have a clue. They don't know. They don't remember that Martin Luther King was hated when he died. They don't know that. Um, they don't know how often he was beat. They don't know that um, there were other antagonists who were doing rioting and looting then too. Um, but what they really don't know is is that um, uh, uh, um, you know he he. He died for our not our right to to vote just because we're supposed to vote. He, he died for our right, my view, to have our vote matter. Um, he he didn't he didn't die just he didn't do what he did so that you know we can vote for the same people that's going to keep us in the same place. You know. Yeah. Um. He 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 did what he did so that. We could have power in, in campaigns. We can we can have uh, agendas that speak directly to us, and you don't have to take away black. You can just say people of color, or you can just say urban. No, we don't. We don't need an urban agenda. We need a black agenda, and uh, that's so hard to do because the minute anything is connected to blackness, it's 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 bound to die. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a whole different argument, conversation, I should say. I don't know if we can end the conversation there because it's a very, uh, heavy statement, which I appreciate. Um, but yes, I mean, yes, this, this misunderstanding of, of what, what, it means to have the right to vote um, is an important discussion. Yeah. yeah. I don't think it's a discussion we've ever had. I don't, I don't think we've ever had that discussion. We've never had what the right to vote really means. Does it mean that we have to get in a line, circle, a, you know, color in a circle and drop it in a ballot? Or does it mean that our vote matters. Um, I, I just think that's two different, very two, two very different things. Yeah, I mean, I think that that conversation is actually like I don't, I don't know where that, like you're. I'm not sure if that's a political conversation, even though it's about voting for politicians. It still feels like this systematic issue, aside from who is actually running. And I think it's a good conversation to have in art classes or in classrooms um, where history is being learned and history is being discussed and uh, responses to that are being discussed. Um, it's very, it's, uh, it's a concept that is, that is not familiar to too many spaces. Somebody, somebody proposed something to me the other day. They said, um, they said, you know, 
you're 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 pointing the finger at black people and saying that you have the you have the the obligation to vote and you have two choices on one side you have trump and on the other side you have the person that had a hand in constructing the bill that skyrocketed black and brown prison population to astronomical numbers. Um, what do you what do you expect people to do? What do you expect people to do? What if what if the shoe is on the other foot, and you know? Uh, uh, you know, the general white population had to choose between one person that doesn't care for them and another person that brought, you know, uh, statistically proven harm to them. What would they do? Would they just pick the lesser of two evils? They've never had to have that discussion. They've yeah. never had to. The closest they've ever gotten is maybe last last election, you know, maybe people just didn't want to do Trump, but they knew they couldn't do Hillary. So they said, all right, let's just see what happens. Uh, but that's the closest they've ever been. It's always, they've always been able to vote for a candidate that had, had an agenda in their favor. Um, we've, we've never, ever, ever had that. The closest is Obama. Um, and so, yeah, that probably explains why his, his black approval rating was so high. Um, but other than that, it's, it's always been lesser of two evils. So, you know, it's, it's easy to point the finger when you've never had to vote for the lesser of two evils. Yeah, and it doesn't really make sense to me to point the finger at anyone because most white people voted for Donald Trump. Um, so it doesn't, it just feels like that is also something that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Yes, yeah, a lot. It's a lot. It's a it lot. Is, the it violence is. Is, is very rich. And, uh, so in a, in an effort not to, to, to end there, I, I guess we can end just with my prediction that, uh, the the league starts again, <laughs> and everybody's everybody's in one place, and there's no uh, timetables and and rest needed, and this and that, this and that. Um, I'm going to predict a Clippers Bucks finals, and I'm going to unfortunately predict Clippers in seven. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't want to vote. You know, predict against my own people. Sure. Um, but I'm. I'm just not. I'm not for sure that Buds has figured out how to use Giannis in a way that mm. defeats the wall. Um. I, I I love him as a coach. I think he's a great regular season coach. He's just not a great adjuster. And he showed that all his career in Atlanta. And he's showing that again in Milwaukee, where 
whenever people put a wall up on Giannis, the, the game the game for us ends. It ends. And we have to hope that Middleton is on fire or that Eric Bledsoe is not turning the ball over. And that's a that's a tough space to be in to win a series, you know, to have to depend on Bledsoe every game and to have to depend on Middleton to be hot every game. Like that's a lot. Um so that's the only, 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 only reason I'm going Clippers because I just feel like Kawhi is just in his zone right now. Yeah. I think he does almost – he does really well when, like, you're not expecting him to. Like, I mean, like last year, for example, um, that no one was betting on the Raptors. Um, yeah, so I just think that – He's kind of a silent, silent killer on many levels, um, and not to underestimate him. I was kind of thinking the Lakers are going to win, but I'm not sure who. I mean, I was thinking it would be Lakers Bucks in the final um, that the Lakers would win. So we both are consistent on the LA part, <laughs> which seems like that yeah. one or the other is going to be everyone's pick. Um, but we'll see. What happens? I, I have to say I'm very hungry for basketball. Like, I'm, I'm ready for it to come back as, as much as I think, uh, you know, I want to be putting my attention towards a lot of things right now. I also could use some basketball in my life. Yeah, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of people. I've seen some, I've seen some posts going around that said, you know, when the NBA come back, don't lose focus on what we've built. Um. And and I agree with that, but that's that's our that's that's always been the case. We've always been um, we've always been uh, prisoners of the moment. And right now, Black Lives Matter is the moment. Can we sustain this moment permanently? Can we have a permanent movement to confront? anti-racism it's not going to be defeated in a year or even 10 years but but can we have an ongoing conversation to defeat it even after the nba comes back even after march madness comes back even after everything's back open and and don't have to wear masks potentially and, and and trump loses and we got weirdo biden in there even after all of this happens is there still a sustained movement to, you know, point out and confront um, anti-racism? We're not expecting everybody, white or black, whoever, to become this abolitionist activist. That's not what we're asking for. People are simply asking for you to think about it, stop ignoring it, Stop acting like it doesn't exist. Stop acting like it's it died with the uh, Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act in the 60s. It didn't. Um, and, and just what can you do on a daily basis to chip away at it a little bit? Well, I really appreciate you making this time. No, I appreciate you having me. I really, I was looking forward to it all week and, uh, Definitely enjoyed the talk. I, I, I love to 
people, my, my, my kids and my wife tell me I love to talk about myself. Um, it's not that I, I love to talk about myself. I actually hate talking on the phone. It's that I love to express things that I believe in. And, and that's yeah. another reason why I quit my job and became an artist because, you know, there's, there's no creative expression when you're working in a power plant. You follow directions and you wait for the check to come. Um, I knew that I couldn't do that for the rest of my life. I have things that I'm thinking about. I have people that I want to work with. I have, you know, things that I want to see and, and I just, I just can't do that working for somebody. So, uh, so yeah, this was a a great time and, and I enjoyed every second of it. Yeah. And I think, um, some of the issues we're talking about, um, are are always relevant unfortunately but i also think that right now it is important to have them more than ever um so i appreciate your willingness to to yeah participate in this for sure yeah yeah just uh enjoy your time with your kids and your work and um let's just stay in touch Will do, will do, will do, for sure. Okay. So we'll talk soon. All right, thank you. All right, okay. Bye.